everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the podcast. Today I have a special guest with me. It is Mike from Resonant Arc. Welcome to the podcast, my dude. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. It'll be a, it'll be a good conversation. This is stuff that I've been thinking a lot about recently. So, well, recently is in the last couple of years, but yes. Yes, I know what you mean. And it's funny because I feel like my brain has been in a very similar headspace. And so when I saw your, uh, I guess, an update video, update vlog about kind of the things you were going through and then the podcast episode, I was like, wow, <laughs> that's my part yeah. of town, too. I'm dealing with this exact same stuff. And I think a lot of people who create videos on YouTube and such or do podcasts, I mean, we all go through this. So I thought no one really talks about it in detail and I thought well from just following your content I think you'd be a, a really articulate and interesting guest on the topic so I thought hey let's do it yeah sounds sounds like fun I'm excited so the topic at hand today is the ultimate challenge of the internet of mankind potentially which is trying to have some sort of nuanced or intelligent conversation over the internet and man it can be a lot it can be a huge struggle, especially if you're trying to make detailed or nuanced points to your audience or maybe people who aren't your audience. It's very easy for what you say to get misconstrued or to get taken intentionally, offensively. And man, it's a struggle. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, um, it's basically the struggle of human existence to try and communicate your intent to another person. And, uh, it's very difficult sometimes when people think so differently. Yeah. And so I think it'd be good to start off by getting kind of an introduction of who you are for the listeners. It's funny for me to introduce you, right? Because you're probably much more well-known than I am, but my small band of listeners may not be aware. So uh, you have a YouTube channel that was formerly the Dark Pixel YouTube channel and Dark Pixel podcast. That's how I first discovered you. And then over time, you've evolved and changed your mm -hmm. name, leveled up. So yeah, we we actually got started on YouTube back in 2011 doing essentially like visual effects driven short film type content. Think like Corridor Digital if you've heard of that channel, like in that vein or maybe like the old Freddy W type of videos. And we were doing that for a long time and YouTube has changed over the years in such a way to where Short form content, you know, videos that are two to three minutes long and that take a very long time to make because there's lots of post-production and heavy visual effects and stuff like that uh, when you're not uploading like super frequently, like once a week. Made it very hard for channels like that to survive. So we ended up switching to focus on uh, more longer form game uh, specifically related content. And uh, so Dark Pixel was that other channel we started on. And Dark Pixel Gaming was like an affiliate to that. It's like, oh, we are the Dark Pixel guys, but here's where we do our gaming content. Right. And um, as we basically stopped working on the other channel, uh, it didn't really make sense to keep it affiliated to a dead channel. So uh, we decided to basically discover what it is that this channel specifically was about at its heart and did a rebranding into Resonant Arc, which more accurately reflects what we're trying to do there. So, I know what you're saying, because there's times where I create content that definitely is not, especially lately, I've wanted to get into content that's not necessarily even game, video game related, more like mm -hmm. art and stuff like that, art writing literature and stuff. But you try and 
hand that to your video game audience and they're like, what is this crap, dude? We're not here for this crap at all. So, (laughs) yeah, so I definitely understand why you uh, rebranded and had to move on. And it's interesting how YouTube has morphed before our eyes, you could say it evolved or de-evolved, however you want to say it. Yeah, it's it's changed a lot. (laughs) So I thought it'd be fun for you, maybe, maybe not, for me to tell you how I came across your content and how I've been a fan of yours for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. So it's kind of a, a weird, funny story. And what it was is that I was going through, this was quite a while ago. I wish I could pinpoint the year. I was still in college. I want to say like 2014 or 2015. I think it was the early days of your channel, though, because I don't think you mm-hmm. had too many videos. Were you around in that year? So that sound about we, right? We started, we started the gaming channel like probably 2012, but I was very infrequent about uploading to it until we started really focusing on it around 2016, I think, maybe 2015. I have a really good way to pinpoint when it was. It was the first podcast episode I saw you, you were wearing a mask. You were like masked up. Yeah, that was probably that was probably 2016, somewhere in that range. Okay, so it was probably around 2016 then, yeah. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this is interesting. And I was like, oh, is this like performance art or something? <laughs> <For a second. laughs> but but anyway, yeah. So how I first got a, came across your channel, though, is I used to be a triathlete and I used to have lots of hours to kill in the pool swimming laps. And so I got a swimming MP3 player. And the thing about that player was specifically it kind of sucked for playing music because the water would blow in and out of the ears all the time. And so it, was, mm. it, was, it didn't make listening to music that enjoyable. But I noticed I could listen to like books on tape and all those kinds of talking type stuff. Yeah. And it worked. And so I came across your channel and I'm looking for YouTube videos. This is back before I had a smartphone or anything like that. Again, it's an MP3 player where they're long enough to justify me ripping or downloading the audio and listening to them while I swim laps. And so mm. I think it was your one of your Final Fantasy retrospectives, I was going through just video game videos of like, okay, this thing's like 30 minutes long. That's that's worthy. And so that's how I actually ended up. <laughs> yeah, I never actually watched a good part of your videos. So I'd listen to the audio for like a year or two because I was always swimming laps or running around and stuff. That's awesome. That's really yeah. cool. I thought that was probably a pretty unique way someone came across yeah, your channel. I've, I've, uh, we've had a lot of people who will say, oh, you know, I, I listen to your podcast as a commute you know on my commute to work or whatever or while i'm at worked out past the time but uh i've never heard anyone say that they uh did it while they were you know training in a pool swimming <laughs> yeah. laps that's that's really cool yeah i actually get that a lot too people listen to my podcast it's interesting and kind of um i don't know the right word for it kind of mind-blowing sometimes when you hear what people do with your content yes one guy's out fighting forest fires in California, listening to the electric underground and other guys, you know, stationed um, in a military station and stuff. It's like, whoa, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. People all over the world with really different lives and experiences. And it's it's kind of a humbling thing to see, you know, how many people are you're reaching and just like how different their their life experiences. And that can be just as informative to me as a creator, as you know, maybe uh, the stuff that I'm saying is for them. So it's yeah. always nice to meet meet the people behind uh, the screen, so to speak, that I'm talking to. Right. And on that topic, I have two little sub questions that just popped into my head. The first is I had an experience not too long ago where one of the main sources of shmup 
content is a channel called STG Weekly, and they've been like a really good representative of the genre. I'm trying to think uh, an RPG equivalent to that. It's not coming to mind, but I had a cool experience where one of the founders of STG Weekly ended up becoming a fan of my show and listening to it during his commutes. I was like, holy crap, it's gone full circle. Did you ever have a full circle moment like that where maybe someone that influenced you became a fan of yours? Um, well, there are a couple examples. Like with my original Dark Pixel channel, I, I mentioned Corridor Digital um, right. as a channel that we were kind of similar to. And uh, we created a video called Starcart. It was one of the last videos that we made for that channel. It's a fully CGI, professionally rendered race like a mario kart race but inside the all the characters are inside of star wars ships like x-wings and tie oh, fighters cool. and a-wings and things like that and they race through these different star wars environments and um it was it was one of the best videos that we made on that channel and we were we actually got contacted by some of the guys at corridor digital saying like they were big fans and they watched the channel and they liked our work and they were really impressed with that by that video so that was probably uh one of the best examples of the kind of thing you're talking about, but also just through the work I've been doing on resonant arc, I've, I've met someone who I had, I had been watching for a long time in lore runner. Oh um, yeah. I love his content too. Yeah. And so like, I've had him on the podcast a couple of times and I've had good discussions with him. And uh, so there have been a couple of examples like that where I've, I've met people that, uh, I had been watching for years in the past and had no idea were even aware of my content. So I remember when he showed up because I was a fan of his too. like both of you, your channels independently of each other for a long time. And then Mm. when you two crossed over, holy crap, the Globetrotters or something like some of your favorite content creators come together. (laughs) I think that's always cool. I that's why I try and do collabs with as many fellow shmup people or that like uh, Agro Sky. We do a lot of stuff together. Because I think mm. it's cool for the individual fan bases to see the P- or SG Weekly guys come on my stuff all the time. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. And so my second question, this is something I'm really curious about. So in the shmup community, a lot of my audience, if not the majority, are international. The international shmup community is a little bit more active than the American in some ways. Mm. Uh, how about for you in your channel and with RPGs? Is it a strong international presence or is it mostly American? Oh, it's it's definitely um all over. There are a lot of people that I've met who either became supporters of the channel or just fans who I've talked to in the comments and then those conversations carried over to Discord or other places. And so I have I have two people who I would consider good friends now who have never met in real life because they both live in Japan and they have helped me with um some translation work on some of the stuff that I've been doing for the channel. I was recently in uh, contact with the creator of Suikoden for a Suikoden 2 retrospective that I did. And I wanted to ask him very specific questions that there was a lot of rumors floating about right. in terms of like how he wrote that story. And so I wanted to make sure that that was true before I put it in my video. So I contacted him. And so anyways, these these guys in Japan, they helped me uh, to you know translate and, and be able to approach him. I have a lot of other supporters who are in the in Europe and in the uh, EU and stuff like that in uh in England and other places so i used to do a thing on uh, uh for patreon as a reward where at a certain level 
I would be selecting somebody every week and then I would kind of just sit down over a Skype call screen sharing and I would just play through a game that they would recommend that they would like to get my thoughts on. And so I met a lot of people through that, had a lot of good conversations. And so I kind of know people all over, <laughs> all over the world now, um, Australia and uh, India and Japan and Europe and England and just all over the place. Uh, and a lot of people from America as well. So it's kind of a, a mishmash. It's, it's because I speak English, you know, it's mostly dominated by English speaking countries. But yeah, uh, there are people all over the world and it feels like I know kind of all all kinds of people from all over so top tier tip for anyone out there if you're interested in like really in-depth video game coverage having a homie that can translate into japanese and stuff is super helpful because plasmo he's a he's a shmup player and he's fluent in japanese top tier and so he helps me if i ever have japanese questions or i actually interviewed a japanese super player not that long ago and i was like help (laughs) (laughs) nice nice so that, yeah, that's a hugely beneficial resource. Very helpful. So I thought now let's get into the the main topic of the podcast here, which is kind of just the struggles that you've been having of late and myself as well of trying to communicate some larger ideas or deeper discussions and how you can get totally whiplashed from that sometimes. So let's go back and talk a little bit about what you were talking about on your podcast where you were, uh, I can't remember, you guys were talking about anime and then you mentioned that you felt like certain anime looks cheap, which I agreed with. And uh, yeah, the fans were not having it. Yeah, we, we got a lot of backlash on that one. <laughs> uh, primarily, my audience comes from people who enjoyed Japanese role-playing games. And um, Japanese role-playing games are very much rooted in anime and manga culture. Definitely. Japan. So there's lots of crossover there. So a lot of the fans of my channel who like Final Fantasy and Suikoden and these kinds of classic JRPGs, they also really like anime. So my particular criticisms were not appreciated uh, in that in that conversation. We got a lot of pushback on that. Yeah. And the thing about it is, for me, I felt like what you're saying was completely accurate, though, even among anime fans. I mean... Like, I follow anime YouTube and stuff, too, like Digibro and all his stuff pretty closely. And it's like, there's it's not a big secret that anime production quality has definitely gotten cheaper because the industry, the the margins are thinner, so they have to cheap out the production a lot of the time. So I, I couldn't quite understand what the big issue was necessarily. What was you going know, on there? It's It's complicated to explain. I think in order to get there, one thing that, I might want to lead off with is that I am very much a social recluse. It might not seem that way, you know, watching my videos or watching the way I talk on podcasts and stuff like that. But I have always had social anxiety uh, my whole life. And I really struggled with the concept of being misunderstood. I think it's possibly like one of the things I'm, I get most worked up about or most afraid of is that what I say will be misconstrued in a way that I did not intend. And I think that that fear, for whatever reason, you know, has sort of like led me on this lifelong observation and search to understand like why people misunderstand each other so easily and like why language is so difficult (laughs) to uh, express your intent. Um, I've done some, you know, research into the, you know, the 
the science of the brain behind that and um, just done a lot of thought on it. But I think that, and, and it's it's one of the reasons why I've made a strong attempt to be as articulate a person as I can be, because I just, I find it really important to be able to communicate clearly to people and to help them understand what you intend in order to avoid misunderstanding. Um, even that being the case, obviously it still happens to me with, I mean, we haven't done a podcast in a couple of months because this was such a strong kickback. Uh, so, so much, I guess, uh, so many people were so offended or so angry by what I said that I really had to step back and say like, okay, like what, what went wrong here? What did I, what did I do wrong? And I think what it boils down to is I, I don't feel like anything that I said was inaccurate. Kind of like you're saying, I think Definitely. even in, even in anime communities, they complain about the same things. So I think what's happening is that I tend to not be like a super emotional person. I, I try not to like let emotion drive my decisions. I try to keep that held back to some degree and, and not let it like interfere with my, with my thinking. And so I, I can tend, I think, to come across as being very cold. And so sometimes when I'm saying something, I, and I, there's not like excitement in it, or there's not like a lot of, um, I'm not sure like what term exactly to use, but I think I know people, what you're saying. Get, people get the impression that um, I'm speaking from a place where I'm not sharing an opinion so much as that I'm trying to say something as if it's like a fact. Yes. And, and because of that, I think people will maybe disagree with something I said, even though I try often to clarify before I say something, this is my experience, or this is, my, this is an opinion that I have based on these experiences that led up to it. You know, I, I talked a lot in that podcast about my experience, my personal experience with Xenoblade Chronicles, and why I was so attached to its art and how I kind of tied that game as being like a, a, a pillar that stood out among all the rest of the, the more quickly produced anime that, it, that comes across as being cheaper in production quality. And how like my distaste for certain like newer JRPGs and anime are kind of rooted into the art styles themselves. Like I can kind of see a type of anime or a type of JRPG almost just by looking at the art style and know that I'm going to like or dislike it because there is such a trend in, in anime. There are so many tropes repeated that you can kind of just tell. And so when this new Xenoblade Chronicles re-release was announced and they had changed the art direction from the original, I was expressing the reasons why I, I, I didn't appreciate that, why I would have rather that they stuck more closer to the original. And anyways, I think my way of expressing this, because there's, I'm not a super emotional person, I think people tend to take what I'm saying as if I'm dismissive of any other possible perspective on that thing and that I'm speaking factually when I'm not really trying to. And so I think that um, a lot of it was kind of just like a stern kickback to, they, they were thinking that I was speaking on behalf of, or, or trying to say that, that something was a, an objective truth when I was just trying to share an opinion, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. I actually have another theory as to why. I definitely think what you're saying, because I've been in that, I've been in that boat many a time, let me tell you, but yeah, yeah, I'm similar in that way too, where what my opinions sound like my 
statements or decrees upon life, you know, because I sure if you speak with a certain level of confidence, your opinions just sound like you're a hard ass or something when really sure when really in your heart, like I'm pretty easily you can convince me of things pretty easily. I'm not that stubborn, but just the way I say things. Yeah, I know what you mean there. But another Mm -hmm. just knowing smaller communities, anime, shmups, JRPGs, knowing kind of knowing how they work more too. I kind of wonder if the pushback was a lot of it wasn't necessarily, like you said, what you said, because obviously what you said was not offensive. If people think that's offensive, (laughs) you're not in the little group. You're not in their family. So it's like someone like you can talk bad about your family member, your favorite show if you love it. But if someone outside that community shows up and says, hey, this artwork looks cheap. You're like, no, you know what I mean? Like it's that sudden, oh, he's putting down what I love, even though they themselves would agree with that. Oh, sure. The tribalistic mentality is a a huge part of it, right? And, you know, this is something that I've thought so much about, like, how, how do you approach sort of like mitigating this hardcore tribalistic tendency that people have where they choose an in group yep. that they identify with? And no matter whether the ideology or just kind of the, the, the tendencies of that group, whether they are defensible or not, they just aggressively defend it. Absolutely. Even like you said, where, where within the in-group, they would perhaps, they have memes or ways where they poke fun at certain things, yet still anyone outside of the group, anyone outside of the tribe, so to speak, they're perceived when they criticize that as being an enemy to them. And, you know, this, I think, has a lot to do with uh, human evolution, where people survived based on their ability to pick and contribute to the strongest group, the strongest tribe. We are very much social creatures. And if you could belong to the right, quote unquote, the correct, the strongest, the best group, then your chances of survival went up exponentially. And I think that this isn't just something we learn to do. I think that in part, at least, it is biologically ingrained in us to seek that, to seek a group that we belong to and that we feel like will succeed, that will be right. And so whenever someone comes in and challenges our ways of thinking pertaining to that group, it feels like a personal attack. Even for something as trivial as which video game console is your favorite? Are you a Sony fanboy or a Nintendo fanboy? It's so strange to see people, I mean, just aggressively fighting over something as trivial as that, as if it were something more like politically driven, where you can actually make uh, changes or religion where these things actually affect your way of life. You know what I mean? It absolutely has nothing to do with me, whether some stranger I'm talking to prefers a different video game console for me. It doesn't change the fact that I still have this one and I can still enjoy it as much as I want. But there's there's something that feels threatening, no matter what, about somebody challenging your ideas, especially when they pertain to any kind of in-group. And so I've thought about, like, how do you combat that? Like, how do you tear that down and get people to think more individually and the answer is i don't think you can i think that this is this has been part of what made human evolution successful and because it made it successful it's propagated further 
And so it's either going to be something that takes a long, long, long time after we're not here anymore for humans to sort of grow out of or evolve past. But otherwise, you kind of just have to understand that this is the way humans think naturally. And you have to learn how to try and get past your own tendencies to defend yourself and fight against people challenging you and come to understand that being wrong is not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing, nothing bad about you because you might believe something that's incorrect or you might need to be corrected on something. But that's just a deeply emotional and very difficult thing for people to accept. And they don't like it when someone comes in and tries to say that the way that they think about something or something they enjoy isn't really as great as they think it is. And, and that's why you get all this fighting online. It's, it's, it's real, really deeply ingrained in who we are as people. Yeah, that's funny you mentioned that because I actually have an episode of the podcast called Emulation is Religion, where mm. the shmup community and video games in general, but especially shmup players, have these extremely powerful opinions on emulators and which mm -hmm. ones to use and stuff. And basically, when I showed up to the shmup scene, I was pushing a newer one like, hey, this one's got some legit features. And I think the world exploded. I mean, people lost their damn minds over this. Yeah. I'm trying to tell you, look, MAME's great and everything. But I mean, this this is pushing, you know, RetroArch and stuff has some stuff that just MAME can't do. And right. yeah, it became, like you said, I felt like I was a politician and a priest at the same time at the end of the day. It was people just freaking out. I know. So. And, and over something that ultimately doesn't matter, right? But again, the only explanation I think for that is that it's just part of who we are to defend our identity because we attach our way of life, our ideologies, the things that we like, we attach those things to our personal identity. And so anytime the thing over here that you like is being challenged somehow it feels like my identity is being challenged or ridiculed or whatever and i can't stand for that 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 means i'd have to do some deep introspection <laughs> and that's very uncomfortable so yeah it's it's a tough thing to deal with it's really hard yeah and i also feel like the internet is kind of just dominated by absolutes and absolute thinking mm -hmm. where black and white for sure I try to view things as just because something is flawed doesn't mean I can't love it. And sometimes you get so much further with conversations, with interactions with people when you can admit, yeah, this thing is flawed. This thing is pretty whack, but I still like it anyway because it charms me or it interests me in other ways. And mm -hmm. it actually can be pretty liberating for some people. But I think a lot of, especially what I deal with online too, is like people feel in absolutes, you know, like they love the Nintendo Switch. And so when I tell them, hey, the Psycho port on the Nintendo Switch has six frames of lag, dude, that's a lot of lag. They're like just losing their minds. So <laughs> I'm, like I'm saying, though, I like the Switch, too, but it doesn't mean that it can't be flawless for me to like it. So Yeah, nothing. Nothing's perfect. I mean, like the whole point of the Nintendo Switch is to make some sacrifices on ter in terms of performance and, and graphical fidelity in order to make the system cheaper and to let it make it so you can take it with you on the go. And some of the things that make it really great in the first place are only possible because of the sacrifices to hardware power and specs that make it so that it doesn't perform like the other consoles or PC obviously could do. It's okay to accept that. I don't know why that would be a divisive issue at all. <laughs> yeah.
I definitely wanted to talk to you about is, as of lately, I don't know what's going on, maybe just the way things are getting to be on YouTube and stuff, but as of lately, a lot of shows and podcasts and creators I followed for the past few years, a lot of them are just shutting down, quitting, leaving, for various reasons, you know, and uh, now that I make podcasts and stuff, like when I was just a fan, you look at the content creators you watch and listen to, and you kind of just view them as like a... uh, like a book or something, like just an infinite source of information, entertainment, whatever you want to call it. But once you start becoming that source and putting stuff out, people don't realize how much of a person is actually invested in the stuff you create. And so I wanted to ask you, because I've had many, many times making my podcast and stuff where do I even continue? Like, what's what is really the point of this? Is this getting anywhere? Or is this just me battling the internet? You know, so... (laughs) I kind of wanted to get your, I guess, your thoughts on in the aftermath of everyone just losing, you know, losing it and biting you in the leg. As a content creator, like, how did that, did that shift your view at all? Or is that just another day in the office type of thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, anytime somebody starts in some new creative endeavor, it's generally driven by some internal inspiration you know they're motivated to do something because they feel like uh-huh. oh, i gotta i've gotta get this out of me i have this idea or or whatever in my mind and and i feel like this is important and i want to try and get it out there and present it in a way that would be engaging for me as an audience member so you start out there and the thing is is that any creative pursuit i mean it's really unless you've done it and unless you've done it for an an extensive amount of time, tried to keep up with something for years and years, it's really hard for people who haven't done that to understand the toll that it can take on you, especially when you feel pressured to do something when it's just a hobby. It's one thing. And, and that that's kind of how I was doing my retrospectives and stuff for a long time, because we were running that other YouTube channel and that was kind of our main focus. And I would just, when I had the time, or whenever I felt inspired to do it, I would put up a retrospective or some other game-related video on this gaming channel that was just meant as an affiliate. And when you can kind of just do something when you feel inspired to do it, and it's it's fun and and it's engaging and your brain is uh, enjoying the process. But when you then try to make the switch to, okay, I'm going to actually make something out of this. I want to try and make a career out of this. And I want, I need to build a following behind this in order to make that viable. That's when a lot of days you have to work when you don't feel inspired and when you're not necessarily brimming with good ideas and you have to try to keep going and make it work because otherwise the thing will fall apart. And especially on YouTube with the way the algorithm works, you have to be like perfectly consistent. Otherwise you can really get hurt. And uh, anyone who's trying to make a business out of their YouTube channel knows that uh, you can't really take breaks. You can't really uh, step away from it for very long at all. Otherwise, you'll you'll really get you'll really get hurt by that. So before this all happened with the, the last couple episodes of the podcast and people getting really upset, I had already been on the verge of just wanting to call it all off. I I'm kind of a, a workaholic. so. I mean, this has always been true of me, even like going back to before I ever started on YouTube, I was working three jobs and saving lots of money for college because I didn't want to go into debt. And That's crazy, um, dude. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've worked in the realm of 60 to 80 hours, sometimes 100 hours a week 
since I was 22 years old. And it got to the point where this earlier this year, probably around May or something like that, I'm 32 now. So it's been, it's been 10 years since I've been trying, you know, working like that, just volume of work. And I'll, I'll say this first. I mean, obviously at the time I was working like at a furniture gallery and then I was doing, um, driving a shuttle over here and I was doing valet parking over here. So those were like jobs where I was working for another person. Obviously, when we switched over to doing YouTube, yes, there's more joy that you get from work because you're doing something creative and something self-fulfilling. But that's kind of the point I'm trying to get at is that people with when if you have not done that, if you've not tried to make your passion into a career, you have no idea how quickly something that was once enjoyable can become really, really hard to make yourself do every day. And again, especially in creative fields, because that requires a special kind of like passion and inspiration. And if you don't have that and you're trying to make something work, something that your audience expects of you to do every single week, it is really, really hard. It's it's a gigantic mental strain and it just it, it can really take its toll on you. And on top of this, I was working many, many more hours than like the normal 40 hours a week. So earlier this year in May, I kind of had this mental breakdown where I just, I lost my mind for about three days. I was on the verge of just deleting the YouTube channel without saying anything. I was, I, I, I've been writing a novel for 17 years. I actually did delete the entire novel. No. Um, and luckily, cause I was, um, I essentially had it on, a, it's in Google documents. So. I deleted it and then deleted it from the trash on Google documents, right? And I did the same thing on my hard drive on my computer. Oh, but luckily, shit. Google Google doesn't actually ever really delete anything. Thank you, <laughs> so, Google. <laughs> right. Our overlords, there's all this problem. But still, thanks to them, I was able to recover this book. And since then, I've continued writing. But I mean, that's kind of how far gone I was mentally, oh. just to paint the picture, right? Yeah. So I had to really kind of step back and uh, rethink how am I going to create a better work-life balance for myself, right? So anyways, on the back of all of this, you know, just struggling to this degree mentally behind the scenes in a way that nobody else really sees and, and still trying to produce engaging content and grow the channel even when you don't really want to work on it. And you have uh, you know people on Patreon who are supporting you and who you're obligated to give rewards to and and of course, you're very thankful to them and want to reward them for their patronage. Anyways, all this pressure mounts. And when that happened with the podcast, the last couple of episodes, I, I did. I, I called Case. And I was like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. Like, if people are going to be this disingenuous to me and they're going to react this way just because I have a difference of opinion, like, what's the point? Like, what is the purpose of trying to talk to people <laughs> And trying to communicate and try to create something that they can enjoy while they're doing their laps swimming, you know, to kind of pass yeah. the time or whatever it may be. You know, I'm trying to provide something that helps people. And if they're going to react to me like this because they don't agree with me and not because I've said anything that's actually genuinely offensive, I'm done. Like, I don't want to do I don't want to waste my time on that. I have so many other things I could be doing and I already have a problem with work life balance. So what am I doing? Right. That was the initial reaction. It was a very, it was a strong reaction. I've, I've had time to step back and, and, you know, think about it a lot more since then. But there is a lot of validity there too, though. Like there sure. is a lot because 
I just want to say, because I, now that I, like I said, have walked not a mile in your shoes, but like a few feet in your shoes, I guess you could say, because yeah, much shorter, much less impactful time. But still, like, I think one thing that if people, hopefully your fans listen to this, if they do, one thing that I think actually more fans need to do, and this sounds lame, but it's true, is like, the fans who appreciate your stuff, like myself, Swimming Laps, we should reach out to you more. Like, I've started to realize that we need to start reaching out to the content creators we like and uh, saying, like, nice stuff to them, basically, because as the content creator, you don't hear that. You probably have a 90% audience base who loves your stuff, but you hear the 10% who are just pissed, and that's all you hear, and then the 90% of us are just, just kind of like this silent mass hanging around, and it's funny because... Sometimes I have no idea how many fans I have anymore. Some days I wake up, you know, especially after I made some kind of like bold statements and stuff. I wake up and I'm like, sure. do I have any fans left? Do they all hate me now? Like, and there's times where I'm like, oh, everyone hates me. Everyone just wants me gone. They're, they want me to leave. And then, you know, talk to people and they're like, what are you talking about, dude? I have no idea what you're even talking about. So, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? You touched on it earlier, too, right? Like there is a tendency to sort of start thinking about the creators that you follow as a source for a thing, right? A thing that you have made a, a habit in your life or whatever. Right. Um, especially when it comes to YouTube channels. There are certain channels I'm subscribed to where I have like this daily ritual where I'll make my dinner and I will watch those channels. And it's it's a it's a way of relaxing. It's a way of, you know, letting off steam. And you start to think about the people behind those channels as being like a resource to you right, right. yeah a, a way for me to get the relief from the stress that i feel in my life and you start not thinking about them as human beings who are going through similar struggles to you and and who really bust their butt to make this thing for you that you are consuming for the most part for free so i mean that that's one side of it there's no question about that the other side of it too is that they people often do a lot of expression of gratitude and and really do say a lot of positive things if if i go through the comments on my any any video i've made for the most part aside from maybe those couple where i i've maybe had a divisive opinion people are extremely positive and say thank you for making this and this is so amazing and you, you know you're you you're expressing something that i have always believed but have never been able to find words for and, and thank you for this and now i can share this with people and they'll understand me better and that was kind of at the the real center the real like promise of what we're trying to do with resonant arc is art is articulate these sentiments and, and these deep emotional connections people have to this these meet these uh these games that they grew up with and so all of all of that is there but it, it's also part of human tendency to see the 10 percent or less even of the just vitriolic hateful things that people say to you and i don't know why I, I feel like that's also part of something that's just ingrained in us as humans why we tend to give more weight and attention to the negative things people say about us than we do to the positive i mean i i don't know where this was said but it's you know i'm sure a lot of people have also heard for every negative comment or negative thing that happens to you it takes like five or ten positive ones to like counterbalance that right <laughs> Yeah. So to kind of bring you out of that rut, it, it takes way more positive affirmation in your life to make you feel good than it takes negative affirmation to make you feel terrible. And so mm -hmm. anytime that you get just like a, 
a rush, a, just like a, a wave of a negative attention, it can really, really go a long way to buying into the doubts that we all have. And especially in time where we're feeling like already like, man, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. It's just, I just don't know if I'm feeling it anymore. Any, anytime something like that happens, which is what happened with our podcast, it was, it's, it was so easy to just cut it off and say, okay, fine, I won't do it anymore. But since then, I've had comments almost nonstop saying, man, where's the podcast? Like, I'm sure. I miss you guys so much. Like, please come back. When are you coming back? And you start to realize how many people were quiet and, and just never said anything before. Really, really appreciated what you did, right? Yeah, ex exactly. And also, too, I feel like what you're saying about negative stuff coming out, like, I think a lot of it just has to do with our survival instincts, to be honest, because, mm -hmm. yeah, I've had some very aggressive non-fans, I guess you could say. And, you know, there are times where your paranoia starts to kick in, like, how bad are people willing to be? And like, say, like, we talked about wanting to just shut everything down, turn everything off, like delete everything. It's just because you want to create that separation. It's like, Mm -hmm. I just want to return back to my normal life. You know, this wave from my computer, this dark energy from my computer is just infecting it. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know what you mean. That scared me for a minute there when you said you've deleted your book forever because because <laughs> <laughs> just as a, as a fellow writer, like I deleted this book that I wrote when I was 13. It was this mm -hmm. kind of insane Harry Potter fan fiction with like Diablo elements and stuff. It's not nice. good. It's not a good book. But now that I'm a matured writer, you know, every now and again, I wonder like, because I wrote the entire book. It's like a 200 page book I wrote when I was 13. I was like, I just want to read this thing. Like how, what was, what was 13 year old Mark writing about? Like, but I can't, yeah. it's gone forever. So even if, yeah. yeah, I just don't like writers deleting their stuff. Don't do that. <laughs> it's, it's really important for any artist to realize that you are who you are at the time that you create something. Yes. And super you're important. Going, you're going to change. And you're going to mature and you're going to develop as an artist and, and just as a person, you're, you're going to hopefully continue to progress your whole life. But that doesn't mean that the person you were at that particular time was a bad person because they lacked the experience that you have later in life. And it's valuable to return to that and see how far you've progressed and to not try to constantly amend it or change it or yeah. hide who you were, right? Definitely but, not to to use it as uh, as as motivation to keep going to see the progress that you've made and it, it's it's really hard i mean this is the whole george lucas conundrum right where he goes back and tries yes. to tamper constantly <laughs> right with the original trilogy and it's like no man like that's who you were then and it's okay like leave it how it was oh i, I struggle with that. that i struggle with that all the time i'm getting ready to release uh re-release my final fantasy retrospectives again for like the fourth time because I, I do think that I have some legitimate cause to do so because I took so long in making these, right? I started in like 2010 and now we're in 2019 coming in 2020. So it's been a decade since I started that. I haven't finished the series yet. And so the videos that I've made in the last year or so are done in a very particular style that is strongly contrasts what I did at the beginning. So I'm going to be releasing a series that all feels congruent, like it's one series. It was done you know in the same style and format but what i shouldn't do is try to go back to the old one and take it destroy down it and re-upload it with some changes here and there you know what i mean and, and sort of like get rid of that or try to hide who i was because i'm embarrassed by it we're Special often embarrassed edition. 
yeah, we're often embarrassed by who we were in the past because we we see how far we've come or how we've changed. But that's not the way other people view us generally. So, yeah. Plus, like I have some when I was 16 or 17, I went through a breakup, like my first girlfriend, and I wrote some the most emo poetry ever conceived (laughs) by mankind. This stuff is like this makes my chemical romance look I don't know, but it's just the most emo poetry ever. And a few years out from that, after my breakup, I looked at that like, this stuff is so embarrassing. I just want to throw it away. But after my experience deleting my novel from when I was 13, I was like, I'm never throwing another thing I make away again. It doesn't matter how embarrassing it is. I'll just put it in my closet and hide it. And then, you know, that's the way it's been for years. And then this year, I'm trying to now kind of recapture, now that I'm a better writer, obviously, like, I'm trying to recapture some of that period of my life, though. And so... I have those emo poems that I'll read and kind of like it helps me like recapture that mind space I was in when I was 16 or whatever. So I'm just saying you never know. In the future, you might be like, hey, remember that first retrospective I did and how enthusiastic I was and how much I just loved Final Fantasy before this became a job. I wonder if I want to go back and kind of at least for myself, recapture that same energy and bring it to the new video or whatever. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, it's also important to understand uh, pertaining to your uh, your your emo poetry. I was in a in a punk band when I was in high school, and so me too. That's that's pretty much all I did was write that kind of stuff, right? But when you're at that age, you have all of these complex surplus of hormones being produced that create these intense emotional experiences, but the brain of a human being doesn't fully develop until you're about 24, 25 years old. So you're trapped in this body that has all of these complex emotional experiences that are just bursting from you. And a lot of times it's the first time you felt something like this. So yeah, it's just, it's just nothing that you can describe because your brain can't catch up <laughs> to the emotional complexity that you're feeling. And so, yeah, I mean, we're all embarrassed by the stupid stuff we said and did and wrote and created when we were in high school or whatever, but that's, I mean, that's something we all share. All of us go through that because that's part of the human experience, part of the development of every human being. And so there's nothing to be embarrassed about. That's just, but it's it's hard. It's hard to accept that. Yeah, and I, I definitely know what you said about like revisionism. There's definitely been YouTube channels, podcasts, even writers who have gone back on maybe even some stuff that I would consider fantastic work and they just destroy it because of, some issues in their current life. It's like, as an audience member, you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> like with Star Wars, that's a great example. Like, what are you doing mm-hmm. to this? Yeah. Like, um, don't impose your insecurities on your past work, you know? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've been there myself. And my podcast, my early episodes, when I go back and listen to them, I like myself. It's not that long ago. So my interview self is fine. But the audio quality is, boy, it's pretty bad. So oh, yeah. But that's I'm just the same like, thing with my videos. It drives me crazy when I have bad audio quality. Yeah, but it's like, yo, it's just the lo-fi stuff, which starts off the evolution of my audio quality is like a story on itself. <laughs> sure.
there's another topic that I really want to hear your thoughts on, especially because, so I am like in the hobbyist realm, even though this mm -hmm. sometimes definitely feels like a job. Sure. But anyway, so on your channel, though, I remember not too long ago in a podcast, you talked about how you made some videos that I thought were really cool that were definitely not the JRPG standard, like, you know what I mean? Like the mainstream stuff, like uh, yeah. you, the, the video, How Music Moves Us. And mm -hmm. you start talking about more like artistic things, you know, personally, I'm into that kind of stuff. So I was digging it. I want you to talk a little bit about your experience making those types of videos and, you know, how that plays into, you know, probably not going to get a lot of views. Sure. This has been kind of a, an interesting lesson that I've kind of like finally learned recently, right? I, I thought of my channel in a lot of ways like a reflection of myself, like mm -hmm. with yes. all its with all of its complexities and all of its different hobbies and, and different things that I enjoy. And I, I considered it in a way that um, doesn't really make sense when you look at just the business world, right? So mm -hmm. if I'm going to go to, I'll just say, I'll go to Taco Bell and I, I pull up to the drive-thru and they say, all right, today we're serving calzones or something. And uh, that's, that's what we're serving today. So which kind of calzone would you like? Obviously, uh, that would not be acceptable. The reason that I came to Taco Bell is because I want a freaking chalupa, right? Right. And so trying to force me to accept the calzone as, as, the, as the consumer, as the, as the customer pulling in there, it would not make any sense for them to say to me, hey, man, don't lock me in a box. I make great calzones. Try my calzones. It's like, I, but I don't want one right now. I came yes. here. Because I want a chalupa or I want a taco or whatever. That's what I want from you. And that's the thing about brands, right? Right. Brands build an identity and you feel like I know what I can expect every time I go there. People really like to have consistency. They don't like things that feel, what's the word? Uh, or they don't know what to expect, right? Yeah. When, you, when I go somewhere... I, I want to know exactly what I'm going to get. The fear of the unknown, I think, plays into that. So we tend to build habits so that we know what to expect in our lives day to day. And we build habits so that we know what we're getting and we can feel comfortable. And not when we don't know what to expect, things become very uncomfortable. So I go to whatever Italian restaurant in my town to get my calzones. And I go to Taco Bell to get tacos and chalupas. And it doesn't matter if they can make a calzone just as good. There's something about the unknown that just makes people feel unsettled. So I was considering my channel like an, a reflection of myself and saying, hey, guys, I can make all this other stuff, too. I'm interested in making other stuff, too. Can't I do that as well? And the response simply is, no, we come here to, uh, for JRPG stuff. And the audience is 100% justified in that. And it was me who was trying to force, so to speak, a calzone as Taco Bell on someone. <laughs> and so, yeah, they didn't, uh, they didn't watch it. They weren't necessarily interested in it. And at first it was very hard to accept that. Definitely. But it's something that when you look at it from the correct perspective, makes perfect sense. And if I want to start doing different types of content, I should make a different channel and start producing that content over there instead of trying to force something on people that uh, they, they don't necessarily want from my brand, right? Yeah, man, I you have no idea how much I've thought about this because just personally speaking, I'm like a super eclectically taste type person. Like, 
I'll eat a calzone. If I showed up to Taco Bell and they're like, yo, we got calzones today. I said, okay, hook me up with one. Let's do this. Like I'm open to those types of things. And so sometimes I actually really enjoy watching YouTubers. I follow like branch out and do something unexpected. I'm like, whoa, okay, let's check this out. But I've come to realize, like you said, that I am in an extreme, extreme minority. There are not many viewers like that. And so I, for my whole like uh, podcasting, YouTubing, and even before that career, considered that I was the norm. I thought, hey, everyone's like me. Everyone's interested in watching people develop artistically or they're interested in deeper, going deeper and deeper and deeper and just going super deep. Then I realized, no, that is definitely yeah. not how people work. And I was just a, a really good example of this is um, there was a speedrunning podcast that I did a promotion on when I was first getting started because my thinking was, hey, speedrunning and shmups, those are both hardcore gaming type experiences. I think speedrunning is cool. Like, I'd be interested if a speedrunning podcast showed up and got promoted on one of my channels or whatever. And so I did that and I paid for this promotion and everything. That promotion got exactly one new audience member. One. Mm. It was basically like me. He's like, yeah, I was just curious, so I checked it out. And that was kind of an eye-opening experience of, like you say, like people get laser-focused in on what your brand is, what you're offering them. And yeah, you're right. Like as much as, as painful as it is, because I feel like, honestly, it could really benefit some people to be a little more open-minded and to have broader tastes. Mm -hmm. But you can't force your audience to do that, unfortunately. Nope. You can't train nope. them. And a lot of times they, they do have uh, a broader taste. You know, for a long time, I, I was kind of thinking of my audience like, what's wrong with these people? Is, is literally the only thing they like in life anime and JRPGs and they like nothing else? Right. And, and for the most part, that's not true. They do like other things. It's just that they're not going to go, like I said, to Taco Bell for a calzone. They're going to go to some other place for that. So they have other places already where they have those needs met. And they don't need it from me, right? They don't come to me for that. And it's not that it's, 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 see, I'm still even talking about it as me, a person. And I need to stop talking about it that way. They're coming to Resonant Art, the brand for JRPG analysis. Yeah. That's, that's what it is to them. And so I, I need to separate my personal identity from the channel and realize the channel is something separate from me now it is its own thing <laughs> it has become its own identity and i need to treat it that way and and understand that it's perfectly fine and natural for people to expect a certain type of content from there and not try to make them change their mind you know that's hilariously coincidental because i literally today created a new channel completely separate from my channel that's not going to be connected whatsoever you just have to by chance find both of them because I like I had a really long think about this because like I said, I have all these passions outside of shmups and, you know, shmups, sometimes stuff isn't going on in shmups. It's just like nothing really going on. And, you know, I feel like talking about other stuff, but it's just not I can't force that onto my audience and it's just going to alienate people and they're going to be like, what the hell? And they probably won't respect my shmup content as much anymore. So I literally like, OK, I have to create. And it's hard because it's like all my work that I've put into this channel should just give me some collateral, right? But it's it's crazy. That doesn't seem to work, so. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a hard thing to realize, but I, I'm kind of thinking about doing the same thing, actually, about just uh, uploading stuff to my my personal YouTube channel, just my Mike Brown YouTube channel. 
and uh, where I could maybe talk more about uh, literature and storytelling just uh, on a broader sense, right? Uh, things that I'm passionate about that I can't really just do videos about on Resident Arc without having some kind of tie into a JRPG or right. examining the principle through the lens of some JRPG. And I think that that's a better thing to do to, to kind of just start over on something else that you're interested in than try to force it into your existing brand. It just doesn't seem to work. Yeah. And what's funny is you're among the first generation of YouTubers, right? So you're figuring yeah. this shit out on your own. It's not like you can go to the playbook of YouTube channel strategies and be like, well, it says here that, yeah, exactly. you know, <laughs> you got to figure this stuff out on your own. So mm-hmm. and yeah. I mean, figure it out and then refigure it out every year as YouTube changes everything all the time. So speaking of your longevity, how has your as a creator type person, how has your motivation morphed and changed over time? Oh, man, that's that's a hard question to answer. Obviously, I started out as in my early 20s and I had tons of energy and tons of enthusiasm and had no idea what to expect or what I even wanted to do. I was just kind of trying to figure it out. And a a big part of the appeal to doing it was just discovering yourself. Right. And um, now that I'm in my thirties. I mean, I'm, I'm not old or anything, but I'm starting to feel that vitality that just was abundant in your twenties is just not there anymore. It's just, it's a hard thing to describe. You just, you're more tired, a little jaded. You can't go as hard as you used to go anymore, even though you feel like you should be able to, (laughs) um, you know, certain health issues arise that was never a problem before. You need a lot more sleep now than you used to be able to get away with. Yep. There's just all kinds of things that change, but, you know, in, I guess in return, you, you have more experience, you're a, a more mature person, you're not as embarrassed by the stupid things you used to do. But I think that it used to be, uh, maybe a good analogy is to, or, or something to tie this into, I, I've talked about this on my podcast in the past, it used to be that I played video games and watched movies for entertainment. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to be entertained. And with the more stuff I've consumed, I've found it's harder and harder to be entertained by stuff because... Desensitization. Yeah, you, you've seen it all. You know what I mean? You kind of experienced it all. They, they, they repackage it in a little bit of a different way, put a, maybe a little bit of an interesting spin on it, make it their own in ways that can be cool. But just the more and more stuff you've experienced, the less and less impressive it all is. Absolutely. And when that happens, I think that, you know, you can kind of go in two different directions. One, you can keep trying to escalate your experiences higher and higher and higher and make them more and more exciting and more fun to, I mean, just the point where you're just doing crazy, crazy stuff to try and like get that thrill, right? Yep. Free basic. Or... (laughs) yeah or you can adjust what your goals are and i've kind of like reached a point where i've kind of decided that i want to do that instead of trying to escalate and and just chase after fun and excitement to to that degree that will never end i've decided that um what's more interesting to me is to observe and analyze stuff and try to figure out the way that it works And then recreate that experience for younger people who can more easily achieve the fun 
right? And the excitement because they haven't had as much experience in life. And there's, a, a, I think, a special kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it, a special kind of bond that you can have with a person who has never experienced something that you have and you're sharing that with them for the first time, right? You hear people all the time who will say stuff like, I wish I could go back and erase the fact that I've seen this movie before and I, I could just watch it again for the first time. Uh-huh, yeah. And the closest thing you can get to that is introducing, say, your kid to it, right? Yep. Say you grew up and your favorite movie was, I always use Star Wars. I don't know why it always jumps there, but say Empire Strikes Back's your favorite movie of all time. And that moment where Darth Vader reveals that he's Luke's father just kicked you in the balls the first time you saw that. You're like, what the frick? Like, no way. He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. No! No! Luke, you can destroy the Emperor. You'll never experience that again. But that was such an impactful moment in your life. You remember that and you have nostalgia for that moment. So what's the closest thing you can get to experiencing that again? Is sitting your kid in front of it and watching their face. The definitely. first time they see that, right? Yeah, definitely. And and you see people uploading videos to YouTube all the time where they just got their cameras pointed at their kid and they can't wait to see their response to it because that's literally the closest thing you'll ever have to re-experiencing something for the first time again. And to me, I, I kind of had this epiphany when I was on vacation this summer. I think I talked about this in one of the later later podcasts, but there was just a, I don't know, some kind of a tropical bird that had flown down and um, and was kind of like uh, looking for some fish in, in this pond. And there was a baby in a stroller, a toddler, maybe like two years old or something like that. And the grandparents and the parents were pointing at the bird and saying like, look at that. And all of their faces were turned at the child. And the child's face was lighting up as it experienced this thing it had never seen before. And was like, whoa that's crazy. And it, it's pointing at it and it's, you know, making noises and just experiencing something new for the first time. And all of the adults didn't care at all about that bird. <laughs> yeah. Or they're annoyed. They were looking at that child experiencing that for the first time. And there was some kind of joy that they had out of watching someone experience something for the first time. And to yeah. me, it really hit home. Like that's what I think I should be pursuing now is creating experiences for others to have that inspire them and and that you'll get more enjoyment out of life from doing that than you will from trying to chase those experiences forever because i think there's a lot of narcissism and just selfishness that can be born from constantly seeking to please yourself or yeah. entertain yourself when that just by nature becomes harder and harder to do the older you get and the more experience you have so my motivation is pretty much driven by by that concept, by trying to analyze stuff rather than be entertained by it and then pick out like, why do certain things work? Why does it work when an, a storyteller does this or a filmmaker does this or a game developer does this? Why does the audience respond in this way to that? So I can glean from that 
what I need to be able to create those experiences for others to have as well. I think that that's probably at the center of what drives me now versus what drove me when I was, you know, younger. Yeah, I definitely can empathize there. So one thing about shmups is it's just a niche community and everyone is exactly how you describe. Everyone has been around so long and are so experienced and almost jaded to this point where nothing that comes out of my mouth is really going to like blow people's minds or cause any, you know, and the the chances of the community getting bigger are looking more and more slim for various reasons. And hmm. so I've had many people uh, message me, not only in like, some people have been like, you're wasting your time in like a flippant way, but I've also had people with legitimate concern message me and saying, Mark, you know, this is a hopeless venture. It's not going to go anywhere. In some ways, that's true. But what my motivation has shifted to now is that all the content I'm creating is just for the future generations of shmup fans that will eventually, I'm hoping, roll around 10 years from now. It's like, oh my gosh, here's this dude's channel from 10 years ago full of shmup content. And mm. uh, he's the only one because no one else bothered to make it because it no it gets no views. It gets no, you know, whatever. It doesn't go anywhere. So that's kind of my, really my main motivation these days, is the future, like you say, future generations. Are, even for myself sometimes, 10 years from now, I can be like, oh, remember when I made all that shmup content 10 years ago? That's pretty crazy. And go back yeah. and you live it. So yeah, it's interesting how what you're doing and what your motivation is can be extremely critical as a creator. Yeah, I mean, just in preserving, like you're saying, like a whole sort of like niche community, right? It's It's important to, like we were talking about earlier, I think it ties into preserving who you were at the time that you made that thing. Right, and exactly. It, it's kind of the only way preserving who we are at the time we were throughout the history of our lives and, you know, attempting to share the things that we experienced with other people to inspire them as they're going through those stages of their own lives. That's kind of how the species as a whole progresses and moves forward. And I think that there's something powerful in that uh, in terms of it's kind of really the only way that we can contribute to that yeah. sort of like ever progressing evolution. So on that note, for me, whenever I create something, there is a very specific moment where I enjoy it. And it's after the first edit when I'm proof listening. Mm -hmm. That's like the only time I listen to my own content. I'm like experiencing it like a fan. And it's even gotten, I guess, weird enough to where sometimes I'll listen back to my own content and genuinely enjoy listening to it like it's another person. Maybe sure. I'm a little self-absorbed there, but... No, no, I what you mean. Get that one play after, you know, hours and hours and hours of work. I get that one play of listening to it before anyone else in the world. And that's like the magical moment for me. How about for you when you're creating stuff? What is like the moment for each video or podcast you do or whatever it is? This makes it sort of worth it <laughs> if there is that. Usually it's gotten to the point where I, I'm kind of a um, really hardcore editor of my own work. Me too. So I will read a chapter of a novel I'm writing over and over and over again thousands of times. Yeah, I've been before there. Before I might feel <laughs> confident that I can move on from it. Uh, and I mean, even within that, I'll go the same sentence 50, 60, 70 times, reading it out loud, changing it a little bit, changing it back, reading it in context of the full paragraph or the full page to try and get an idea of, does this flow? Does it, does it, do I stumble over it? If I step away from it for five minutes, I'm going to go do this for a little bit and then I'll come mm -hmm. back and read it. And, you know, and I'll do that with my videos, too, where I, I just edit them and edit them. And 
get real nitty gritty in the details. And a problem, I mean, obviously, the if there's any benefit to that, it is that your your stuff is very fine tuned in the details. It is. I can tell. I can tell that with your content. Yeah, it, it feels very polished, right? And and the execution is done well. the The problem with it is that when you listen to your own work or read it that many times, you kind of become detached from, well, just naturally detached from what the experience of the first viewing of that thing would be. And you have no idea anymore how that thing will be received on a first viewing. And so what ends up happening to me is that I almost always fear when I upload a video or when I'm watching it kind of when it's finally completed, I feel like, oh, this isn't good. Like people oh, aren't going to yeah. like this. They're going to see this flaw. They're going to see this problem. This thing might be construed the wrong way. And I've picked out all of the little things that I still have problems with detail wise, because at some point you have to move on, especially when you're trying to run a consistent schedule on a YouTube channel. Yeah. So I don't have the luxury of spending 17 years on my latest video the way that I have with my novel. So I can't address and fix every little problem that I have with them. And if I were ever to do like a live commentary where I watch my own videos, I could sit there and pause every probably 30 seconds and tell you all the reasons why I wish I hadn't done it that way or I wish I had said it a little differently or whatever it might be. I am a perfectionist to a, a pretty big fault, I think. Yeah, that can be your downfall at times. I just absolutely because I've been there. When I actually put the thing up and I get it out there in front of people and the response generally is a 0.5% dislike ratio, you know what I mean? Less than 1% of people who are watching the video give a dislike to it. And you can count out the auto dislike that your one hater puts on there every time. Sure, like, right. Factor that out. <laughs> and and you start to see the the outpouring of positive comments coming in from your the people who really appreciate what you're doing, the fans who see it right when it first goes up. That's when I get the, I don't like to use the word validation, but that, that is technically what it is to yeah, say. Yeah, definitely. Maybe I'm just too hard on myself. Maybe I can keep doing this. Maybe... Maybe what I do make, maybe it is worth something. Maybe it is valuable. And that gives you enough of a refill of or a charge, so to speak, to then go put all that work and effort into the next one. And so for me, I think that's the moment. It's it's the first few hours of the thing being uploaded. And I see the outpouring of support and people just being really positive toward me. Of course, once it starts escaping your core audience and starts getting out a little bit and shared and recommended to people who might not be fans of yours and you start to get some of those negative yep. comments coming in, that's when you need to turn away from it and say, you know, this person doesn't understand what I'm trying to do. It's not that it's bad. They don't have and, the full context for one. Right. Yeah. And so usually for me, I think the moment that makes it worth it is just that very initial release of the thing and seeing how much people appreciate it. I think that that that's what kind of fuels me to keep going. Well, I definitely know what you're saying. And I know, I know what you meant when you said validation. And I know in today's world, that sounds like self-absorbed. It's, it's like a negative connotation. Like negative. Yeah. Yeah. And whatever, because there are times when I'm creating stuff that I think is amazing. I think it's like, you know, people should send me a Nobel Prize in the mail when I upload <laughs> it. But at the same time, I genuinely 
these days have no idea what people like. I cannot get in people's tastes anymore outside my own. And so yeah. that definitely you absolutely need validation to know is do you guys like this or do you not? I have no idea. And so it is satisfying when you're like, okay, I did create something that people besides myself do like. I know, again, it sounds self-absorbed, but that validation is extremely helpful because you can kind of figure out what direction people are wanting from you, what direction people engage with, what direction they don't. Yeah. You know, so and I yeah, have a, a little tip that I started doing because I know what you're talking about, like rereading your stuff over and over and editing. Mm-hmm. your your lines to the point where you start to question like the nature of language like is chair <laughs> a good word is chair really a good word <laughs> yes you know is that a cliche chair you know what i mean you start to get that sure. you get that deep one thing that has really helped me this is actual writing advice that you can give or take but i actually will download the pdf and make my phone read it to me and i found that so helpful mm, that's a good idea if you have an android Voice Aloud Reader is the best one, and it's free. And it reads in a robot voice, but the robot voice isn't funky. It actually reads pretty close to what a human. It just sounds like a robot. I'll have to try that. Voice Voice Aloud is an A-L-O-U-D. Yeah, like a- yes. That has insanely helped me as a writer because it helps you actually hear your writing. You're like, okay, yeah, that. so that's actually really that's a great idea. I think yeah. I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to start downloading yeah. that up. I started doing, yeah, because I've been there too, where I start reading stuff, my own stuff, and then I start questioning. Like I said, I'll get so focused in on the sentence structure where I start to be like, just losing my mind. And that actually, as a writer, what's helped me the most is just letting go to a degree, not like completely, but at least to a degree and just, okay, that's good enough. And then I go back to it. I'm like, wow, this is good. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I actually have a a funny confession that I think I mentioned this once and I got too embarrassed and I deleted it. But you talked about deleting your novels, so I'm going to say it. So um, sure, I actually have this condition that is it sounds so stupid when you explain it to people and it's not really medically that supported, but it's called misophonia, where you have okay. certain hatred of sounds. And mm. I suffer from that. And uh, one of the sounds that drives me crazy is like heavy breathing noises or background noises or anything uh, yeah. so when you're when i'm editing my podcasts you'll notice almost none of my podcasts have breathing noises from either me or the guests because mm-hmm. my uh yeah my condition so like i said for for instance when i'm listening back to my own stuff and i hear someone breathe loudly to me it sounds like so- someone just shot a baby i'm like oh my god this is unacceptable <laughs> this is my audience is going to lose their minds when they hear this. They're going to revolt. I feel like I'm abusing people if I put those noises in there. So it's like, but of course, 99% of the world, breathing noises are human and natural. It doesn't make a difference or not. Sure. And so anyway, I have a really close ear for editing and stuff and your podcasts. And there's certain podcasts I will not listen to if if the the audio has like certain triggering noises for me or if it's not tightly edited or like they meander a lot and stuff just because yeah, it drives me crazy. But your stuff is I can't even tell you how many hours I spend after I do a recording. Right. So I'll have my script done and I'll do my reading of it. I'll record it. Yeah. But how many hours are spent just going through and getting rid of tongue clicks? Yes. And yep. uh, like maybe like nose pops or just um, little clacking noises with the tongue yep. uh, breathing. I, I reduce or eliminate all of it. Because I can't stand it. It is so, to me, as you know, 
I, I have done a lot of sound design, so I pay a lot of very close attention to sound design and movies and games and things like that. But sound to me, I get very obsessive over it in kind of the same way. It's like, I, I have this thing that drives me crazy right now and, and hopefully it's not coming through because I can kind of get to a point where if, if I'm just focused on what I'm talking about, I'm not feeling it or hearing it. But the, it, I, there's something kind of like, I don't know if it's an air pocket or something up high up in my left nostril where every time I finish a sentence, there's this little pop that happens. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't happen. I can't really feel it right now. And and I think sometimes it has to do with like the position I'm sitting in. Yeah. Um, and I, right now I'm kind of like leaning over to make sure I'm close to the mic. And so maybe the position I'm sitting in is reducing that. But I hear it in some of my podcasts and I just I can't watch anymore. Yep. <laughs> because it's live. And, you know, for like a three hour or a two hour conversation, I'm not going to go through and remove every single popping noise that literally happens at the end of every sentence that I say. And it just drives me nuts. And so but when I'm when I'm recording my videos, which are obviously much shorter, 10 to 15, 20 minutes long, I will. I will remove every, every single, single instance one. after yep. every single sentence that I say, and I will make sure it's clean as can be. And so I totally relate on that. Yeah. And I definitely can tell you do that because, yeah, I'm like I'm like the uh, the canary in the coal mine. If anyone's going to find that, it's me because of like my weird sensitivities and stuff. Yeah, I definitely know what you're saying. Well, good news for you. I do that with my podcast. So if it does happen, you'll never know because <laughs> I'll nice. remove it. So <laughs> that's good. To do. That's good to you. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that's awesome. So one last thing I want to talk to you about is this is just me being curious and also kind of just trying to think from your position, you know, you're again in a more a more responsible position because doing this full time or a aiming to what is kind of your what do you think the future is going to look like? Because I'm seeing a lot more people like I follow Digibro quite a bit where they're saying like they might need to just move to Patreon and just, uh, you know, the YouTube is just kind of like a video hub, essentially, not a mm -hmm. source of income. What are your thoughts for your own content moving forward? And like, you know what I mean? Like how that's going to play out? Well, I'm not I'm not good at prediction. I'll just uh, say that right off the bat. So sure. I, I don't think that I can attempt to predict like what the YouTube platform will be like or or anything like that in the future or whether or not just revenue from making videos will ever be like a truly viable thing. But I can say this. YouTube was such a revolutionary new idea when it landed. And there was nothing in the law that accounted for it. This is just why we've had to figure out things like fair use, like what can you put in a video in terms yep. of copyrighted material and and have it be considered fair use or not? You know, what can you say? How much censorship is is required? You know, on television, you can't just get on and say whatever you want. There are laws to protect that so that a child right. isn't like turning the channel and like sees something that a child shouldn't see. Snuff so film. there was, yeah, exactly. There was nothing... All of these things that they figured out in television, which is the closest, it's like the most analogous thing we have to what YouTube is, right? Yes. But it's obviously not the same. There's a lot of differences and there's a lot of other complex parts moving there that make it a totally different platform that needs a totally different set of rules and laws and, and ways of operating. So YouTube themselves have had to figure that out. And the most recent example of this is um, every channel has probably received an email where there's a new law 
where you have to clarify in your channel settings whether or not your content is made for kids. I think that's really good, though. I'll say why, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, I agree. I think it's I think it's really important. We've had some some crazy shit show up in like in the middle of their cartoons or whatever. I'm like, what the hell, yeah. YouTube? Like, yeah, this and, is crazy. This is stuff that if you were to produce a show for Cartoon Network or uh, PBS or anything like that, that the kids are going to watch regularly, they would have all kinds of regulations on what you could say. The network would. And they would proofread your stuff or, or they would say, you can't say that. You can't make that joke. You can't do that. That's not going to fly on the network. Again, because the networks, they have a responsibility to their sponsors and, and to the to the like FCC and stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then also uh, the brands that use their network to promote their products and commercials. And they don't want to appear to be affiliated with a company who supports certain things. These are all things that TV had to figure out. And has been figuring out for, geez, like 100 years or whatever. Probably yeah. not quite that long, but close. Maybe 80 years, 70 years, whatever it is. That none of this was in place for YouTube and for the unique things that YouTube would have to deal with, right? And so they're figuring it out. And that's why YouTube changes all the time. But another big problem is that YouTube doesn't have a real competitor the way that television networks have. And because of that, YouTube kind of does whatever it wants out of self-interest and there's nothing that the create the creators have no leverage because nope. there's nowhere else they can go to make a viable career out of internet content and so something needs to happen where either the youtubers need to come together and unionize and find some weakness in which they can actually gain some leverage in negotiations with youtube and or there needs to be a legitimate competitor in terms of online video where, but the, again, the, the tough thing is that the revenue source has to come from advertisers and online, you can have ad blockers and all kinds of things that make it tougher to uh, actually like get those advertisers in front of people so you can actually make some money. So I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have any prediction on how these problems are going to be solved, but they will need to be solved in order for anyone outside of the select few who find the mega success on YouTube, the millions of subscribers and yeah. millions of views a day. Outside of those people, people won't be able to um, really make YouTube a viable career until you're kind of at that level. So, you know, what do I foresee for my own channel? In, in the meantime, the, the solution for smaller or mid-sized channels is to be funded by fans. So, Platforms like Patreon, Subscribestar. Uh, I know that you can even YouTube itself, I think, has something they've integrated now to where people can donate to you or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, so those are options, but they're not perfect options, obviously. And it's going to depend on your salesmanship as a person to convince people to pay for content that generally is free. That's not an easy thing to do. But for my own channel, it will primarily have to be funded by fans who are passionate about the content. Uh, I don't think that we're ever going to be the type of channel who can put out stuff consistently enough and ha can can get beyond sort of the niche we've put ourselves into, the box we've put ourselves into. Yeah. To really to explode to the point where we would be a 5, 10 million subscribed channel. I just don't think that that's realistic. I think that hitting a million subscribers would be a humongous feat for us if and when that day comes. And so I don't expect that we'll ever 
make just the YouTube videos themselves uh, in terms of the type of sponsorships we can get or anything or just the ad revenue will ever be a viable thing. It'll have to be funded by the fans. And at some point, you know, my ambitions for what I want to do for a career long term, I don't want to be a YouTuber. I, I want to be a writer, a filmmaker, possibly game designer, something in that realm where I'm doing larger scale projects and, uh, you know, putting my own original content, my own stories out there. So at some point, the transition into that will happen. And I see my YouTube channel in some ways as a stepping stone to that point where I can build an audience who likes the stuff that I make and they like the voice that I use and that I can kind of use that as a way to to get the foot in the door in terms of here's the thing I created, this novel or whatever it is. And I can go to a publisher and say, here are 110,000 people who follow me, who I can try and sell this to. Will you give me a publishing deal? And, you know, see if that can kind of get me somewhere. I think that uh, ultimately that's kind of where I'm at. So, yeah, I'm a writer my, myself and I've been investigating this quite a bit. And uh, actually, I think you're in a really good position, just like you mentioned there, because the traditional publishing agency agency environment these days is looking pretty rough and it looks yeah. like the most powerful options especially for certain genres is um actually self-publishing and then having a fan base that supports you and so you having your existing fan base from youtube and stuff like carrying that forward with you would be a very strong like i'd buy your book so like yeah. that would be a that'd be a really good uh yeah like you said really good transition yeah i think that like in today's kind of I don't know, like entertainment industry, uh, the most powerful thing you can do is to build a brand and an audience for yourself. And then yeah. that when you when you take that to somebody who has the money and the resources to really produce something on a large scale, that's something that they'll consider. That's something they'll look at even more so than the quality of the work itself. And they'll Definitely. say, is there an audience for this thing? Can we sell it? And so if you can build that to any kind of substantial degree and you can show them here, I have not just a few people, I have a lot of people who like the work that I make and we can sell this thing to them. That is, the, I think, kind of the, the fastest track into actually like taking that step into making a career out of uh, some kind of creative pursuit, whether that's filmmaking or um, indie game development, writing or music or anything. The music industry is, is even, it's in like a really terrible state in terms of like, uh, being able to actually make money on like record yes, sales. Right. right. And so, or, or, you know, there's just the internet has made it so that people just don't value music to pay for it anymore. People think that, and this is where the streaming services, you know, um, Pandora and uh, Spotify, these were answers to that, right? I can not necessarily pay money, but, uh, the, the artist can still monetize their music and make it viable. And so maybe there needs to be some kind of evolution like that for online video creation beyond like what YouTube's already doing. I don't know. I can't predict what's going to happen, but we'll see. That's what I was thinking, actually, because this is not a, an offensive thought to many people, but really think about it before everyone gets all mad at me. But I almost wonder if everyone would be better off if YouTube just paywalled and made you own YouTube Red to watch YouTube, because I own YouTube Red, and mm -hmm. like ever since doing that, I kind of feel like a little feel a little better because like you know people I watch and stuff 
I think get a little bit of money from me from YouTube Red. I'm not sure how much, but yeah, I think the revenue splits a little bit better if a YouTube Red viewer watches it. Yeah, but really think about it though. Like, how much entertainment do you get from Amazon and Netflix? What you pay for? Yeah, and how much do you get from YouTube? For real, I get way more on YouTube. way more, right? Yeah. So is it really that unreasonable? And then obviously Google should then hand that some portion of that money over to the creators in some kind of way, you know, like somehow based on views or whatever it is. But yeah. I almost feel like would that be a better solution? Or if, if a competitor came out, maybe not YouTube, but like a, a different video content thing came out and they're like, okay, you have to subscribe to us, but we have all your favorite YouTubers. They quit YouTube and came here. So it's like, yeah. okay, I'd, I'll, I'd pay for that. So it really is a kind of a conundrum because it's it's a, it's the expectation, kind of the branding thing that we were alluding to earlier in our talk about the calzone at Taco Bell, right? People have built an expectation or a habit or a ritual or an idea about what YouTube is, which is I go here to watch amateur creators for free. Yes. And so it's very hard to change the culture and identity of that in the minds of millions of people around the world to say, no, but see, it's like Netflix. Can't you see how it's not like Netflix? And even if it is, it's hard to convince people yeah. to make that change to their line of thinking regarding it. Yeah, maybe that's why a whole new, a whole new brand needs to be made. Yeah, like a competitor. Yeah, mm -hmm. that people know going in. It's like, oh, you want to watch Resonant Arc videos? Well, you got to watch it on not YouTube, better than YouTube.com or whatever it is. Or whatever so. it is, right? <laughs> right. Um, or, yeah, I mean, I think that's why YouTube Red kind of struggled to take off because I think it was, it's similarly similarly priced to something like Netflix, it, right? It actually is good. If you own it, you're like, hey, I don't mind paying for this, but it's like that first bite, you know, it's like, crap, yeah. now I'm paying for YouTube. But then once you pay for it, you're kind of like, you feel a little better because whenever you watch videos and everyone's like, everyone's ad blocking, you're like, well, I'm not. I'm YouTube right. rebbing on you right now. Right. You get like albums and music and stuff easier. Like I can listen to albums on YouTube. You get special musical stuff, which makes it kind of worth it to me too. So right. it has a lot of cool benefits if you actually have it. I think it's just hard to break the mindset that I am paying for something like Netflix because I'm getting professional grade content made yeah. with masters of the craft, people who create Hollywood films and, and that kind of level of money and production. And that's why I'm paying my 12 bucks a month or whatever. And on YouTube, I mean, the mindset behind the platform is still pretty much, oh, this is just a guy at home on his laptop who makes a click here and there and, and, and puts this thing out. This is not worth paying for like the Hollywood movies that I get from Netflix or whatever other streaming service. And that's obviously a false perception. And we've been talking about kind of this whole conversation about how much work and effort and time and uh, expertise goes into making high quality YouTube videos. It's just as much work and just as much effort and everything else as, as what, those, what those other people are doing. Depending, of course, there's a spectrum to this. But, you know, for that individual, for what that individual can create, and the amount of effort and the amount of man hours being put into, say, one of my Final Fantasy retrospectives is as much work as the individual director is doing on, uh, let's say, one of the Avengers films or something, right? Like the, the number of man hours being spent 
in the work is the same. The difference is for something like the Avengers, they have a, a team of hundreds of people working together so that they can expand it into something obviously way bigger and, and way higher in terms of production quality than what I can do by myself. But the point is, it's hard to break the perception that YouTube videos are made by amateurs who are not really, they're just hobbyists putting a couple of hours a, a day at most into something to humor me for a few minutes. Yeah. And I think too, I think people need to consider YouTube a different genre of whatever you want to call it, art, video, whatever, because you're not going to get some, especially if you have like more unique YouTube tastes, like you're not going to get some of the avant-garde or interesting or even like stuff like your stuff, like hardcore analysis on Netflix. You're not going to get that anywhere else in the world. Exactly you're not going right. to get that on TV. It's like a whole different genre of content. So I think just that's, people, a, that's a really good point, right? Yeah, it's like, like completely different genre. Again, everybody is going to brands for something specific. So I'm going to Netflix for, let's say, the Netflix originals like The Dark Crystal that came out. You know, like I, I yeah, wanted yeah. to see that. I go there for that content. But I go to YouTube for a type of content I you literally can't find anywhere else in the world. No. So it's hard to educate people on that. See, and say like that is something worth paying for. It's something valuable to you. It's something that you consume more than any other platform. Most right. likely, if you are in the age and or demographic that we are in, it's very likely you're watching YouTube substantially more than any of those other services. And so, but it's just a hard perception to break, man. It's really hard. Yeah, I almost feel like YouTube, the closest thing, like you said, is TV and almost like radio. It's like a weird cross between TV and radio. You'll watch the same, you'll listen to the same station for years and years, listen to the same DJs or whatever for years and years. You'll watch the same TV shows for long periods of time. You know, it's like it's feeling a niche that you're not going to get anywhere else. And so, yeah, I do hope people start valuing it a little more because it does kind of make me sad. You know, when you see your favorite, which is happening a lot lately, like my subscription box is getting empty just because like my favorite YouTubers are all quitting. I'm like, whoa, this is getting barren right now. So it's it's tough. It's a tough time. And uh there's some things that YouTube's going to have to figure out, but something will happen. There will be some new innovation that happens, whether it happens on YouTube or some other platform will arise. Something will happen to fill that need because when people really put their mind to something and they really want something, uh, someone's going to figure out how to get it to them, right? And make some money doing it. Yeah. That's just kind of the way the economy works. I'm meeting up a lot of your time, but I do want to end off on 
like a, a one last question, I guess. <laughs> okay. So we've talked a bit about in the, earlier in the episode about just the difficulty with communicating perhaps controversial or interesting or in-depth ideas. And you've talked about in your podcast having to qualify almost everything you say now. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you have to preemptively strike before people start murdering you in the comment section. <laughs> yeah. One thing I do want to get your insight on, because I feel like your channel is definitely among the channels. I think yours and Lore Runner are the, the best two, where the audience and creators seem to have a much closer connection and like ability to communicate back and forth than most channels. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to hear your insight on how you've managed that. Wow. Um. Well, I wish I had a better answer, but I think that um a lot of it was not done necessarily with intention so i'm not sure that i can point to the exact reason like i wasn't consciously thinking okay i've got to create this community where we just communicate a lot better than most communities do like i didn't like go into it with that thought but i think it is just kind of part of my personality and i think i share certain traits with say uh lore runner's personality where there's this almost obsessive attempt made to clearly and very in high levels of detail without any room, if possible, for misinterpretation. Right. To very clearly define what we mean when we say something. And that in turn sort of like necessitates longer format stuff. I mean, Lore Runner will do his ruminations on stuff for hours, you know what I mean? Talking about this thing. Yeah, I know. They're, they're incredible. Yeah. And so like, when I'm doing, say, a retrospectors or something, I mean, some of them got up to about that length. I mean, my Final Fantasy 13 retrospective was something like 45 minutes long. But generally, they're more in the 20-minute range. And, you know, in 20 minutes, how can I just very clearly say what I want to say and hopefully not uh, mis- mislead or uh, have people misinterpret what I, what I mean to say? I think there's something about my need to do that as just a person not just on the internet, but even just with everyone I come in contact with. I mean, with my family, with everyone else. I've always been kind of a peacemaker in my family. I was kind of a mediator between my brothers and and my parents and, you know, trying to help people see eye to eye. That's always just been something that's very important to me. And I've made that a part of my personal identity is this ability to be able to help people communicate better and and see the intention and, and work through the fog of misinterpretation and that sort of that has sort of led to just that being a natural part of my personality and i think that because i'm that way i communicate to people who also think that way and they are drawn to the content because of that even if it's like unconsciously right even if they don't know that's what it is yeah i think it's like oh like this person gets me kind of a thing right and so it turns out that there are at least 105,000 or whatever our description count is now that kind of are drawn to that or whatever it may be. But uh, in terms of like what specifically I've done, aside from like talking about this stuff, which I've done kind of frequently on my podcast, talk about the nature of human communication and why we misunderstand each other. I think one of my one of my podcast episodes, that was the topic. Like, why do we fight about video games? Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. So aside from just, you know, talking about it, making it, making it a topic and, and sort of like giving my ideas on it, I think it's just, um, it's a natural part of my personality. And for those who think like I do, they're going to be kind of naturally drawn to that. And that's going to create over time, this community that sort of like values that. 
I just want to say that when I watched that uh, video you made, you know, talking about especially all the backlash and stuff, I just want to say that I really appreciate your content. I know a lot of people do. And so, uh, yeah, I hope that doesn't. Uh, I know the burnout, though. Like, I know the burnout. <laughs> I've been there where I'm just I just want to delete everything and move on. Like, I've been there so many times. So I also understand that, too. That's for real. That's a real thing. So Yeah. <laughs> it always means a lot to me when people will reach out and share how the stuff that I've made has positively affected them. Because as you're saying, it goes a long way to keeping you motivated to keep doing it. And it is very common. I, I don't I'm not saying this is a bad thing or that I think it's just natural that people tend to just be quiet. They just tend to enjoy the thing and take that in and, and they don't respond with the thumb up or the comment that's, you know, positively saying, hey, man, thanks for this. There's a lot of content. And like I said, I'm a social recluse. I'm not a naturally um, outgoing person and I don't like make an effort to really reach out to people very much. So it's natural, really natural for me to watch some of the content creators that I watch on YouTube and just never, ever comment on their videos once ever. I mean, right. I almost never comment on YouTube. And so they don't see that they are having this positive influence on me and that they're inspiring me and that I watch them every day and I love what they do. They never see that. And, right. you know, anyways, it's just kind of that, but that's natural. I can't like, you know, get down on anybody for not doing it because I do it the same thing myself, right? You know, yeah, I need to make a better it. effort. I need to make a better effort to let the content creators that I follow know that I appreciate them. But one thing you can say is that you do notice the people who do. Like, I oh, have yeah. this one listener who likes every one of my podcast episodes. Oh, good. Rolf. Rolf liked it. We're good. Okay, yeah. we can. It is a successful episode Rolf has liked. And, you know, it's, people will be surprised how much they will stand out if they interact just a little bit or just like like your podcast episode or whatever. It's like, oh. Absolutely. Absolutely. It goes a long way. It goes a long way. So, But thank you for giving me a chance to get back in touch with you and, and reschedule. It was a lot of fun. I appreciated uh, the opportunity to come on and talk to you. Hey, man, thanks for coming on. You have no idea how, like, uh, I've talked about this a lot. I have a whole rant about this, but, like, it's so hard as a smaller YouTube-ish type person. And like I said, I am doing this purely out of love of creation and stuff. Shmups are dead end career-wise. Everyone knows that. So it's purely out of love. But it is so hard to get so like different entities on and stuff. It's like, hey, man, I just want to talk about this topic. I have a lot to offer, you know, as, as like a interviewer and stuff. And uh, yeah, I think before I got you on, I had like eight guests in a row cancel on me. Mm. And so when, when you got back to me, I was like, oh, we're <laughs> yeah, good. I, I, I felt bad because like I was totally, totally down to do it. I just. I, I just did not see the response on Patreon because I don't get like a phone notification or anything, you know? Right. Yeah. So it was just like, I just missed it. And I was like, dang it. Like, hopefully he'll, uh, he'll get this message and we'll, we'll be able to reschedule. And I know the struggle too. Don't worry. <laughs> I yeah. Know the struggle. So thanks so much for coming on. It's been a really cool episode. Yeah. It was a great topic. I had a lot of fun. Oh, good. Any final words before we head out? Oh, just, uh, I'm a person who's, who's really struggled in my life with, uh, feeling, you know, we talked about the perfection and we talked about the, uh, like the mental breakdown I had earlier in the year, right? I felt so alone or unable to like reach out to people to like find help <laughs> when I was going through that. And I've really, and like I said, I'm a social recluse and I really have a hard time socializing with people, but it is really important to have a good, a good support a good foundation with people in your life who you can talk to 
before you delete your life's work and make yeah. a really stupid decision like that. And so, you know, if there's anybody listening who, who struggles with that, struggles with um, self-esteem, struggles with uh, just feeling like you're alone, there are people you probably don't even realize who really, really in- appreciate you and, and care about you. And uh, I've found that with, you know, just the people who reach out to me on the channel, you know, saying, oh, I miss your podcast so much. We haven't podcasted since September, I think. And just like, man, I, when are you coming back? Like, I loved you guys so much. I really miss you. There are people out there. I promise there are people out there who feel that way about you. You just, you're in a state of mind where you're not seeing it. It's lonely at the top, I guess you could say. Think about it for a second and try to be objective and clear your mind and go and reach out to that person and let them know what you're going through because they'll be able to offer you some insight that will that will help that will really help you get through it and change your perspective and and lead to a better place. And that's kind of the process I've been through in the last 6 months or so. I'm in a way better place today than I was then and it's because of people that I talked to and I was open with about my problem who gave me insight I never would have found on my own. So, reach out to people. Yeah, and definitely also know that like any sort of creative venture, whatever it is, even outside of YouTube, it has its ups and downs because it's just so connected to who you are as a person. And so if you ever feel like that burst of negativity, we've been there, hide your computer so you don't delete all your stuff. Like, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> don't set your emo poetry on fire, <laughs> throw out your stuff and shave your head. Just try and like reach out to someone else and uh, get some perspective yeah. from get somebody some perspective. who's not so emotionally invested in the problem you're experiencing. You know, they'll be able yeah. to rationalize and get through it. Actually, that's a really good piece of advice because I've had times where I've talked to my IRL friends about my struggles, you know, being this shmup. Like, I'm not famous or anything, but, you know, you start to feel a lot of, like, eyes are on you or whatever. Yeah. And it's actually hilarious when you try and talk to these problems with your IRL friends because they just kind of look at you like, so? Yeah. Oh, yeah, this is this is really stupid. I'm getting caught up in all this. It's not that it's not as big a deal as it feels like. It's really not. It's not that big of a deal. So some dude on the internet's mad at you because you talked about an emulator this is stupid so <laughs> man if i could if i could share some of the um just intensely hateful comments i've received just people so mad oh my gosh i don't want to imagine it. it's i mean people who would go through the effort of reaching out to me through patreon they they literally became a patron yeah at whatever level they did for one day which means they probably weren't charged they just had the attempt or the ability to Send me that message of hate. Paragraphs and paragraphs of just what an oh, effing yeah. idiot I am and like how he wishes I would kill myself. I mean, just like intense stuff. Like yeah, it's over crazy. something that doesn't matter. It's and you can let it go. You really can just let it go. And that's the hardest thing to learn how to do, but trust me, you can. And learn to let that go. It just doesn't matter, man. The people in your life in real life are the people that matter. And reach out to them, have real relationships with people because that keeps you grounded. And when you get away from that too much, like I was doing, and I was spending way too much time in the the fake internet world with anonymous people, and I have no idea what they really think or feel. They're just saying this because they're stressed out or whatever. You get a totally false perception of yourself and of reality and of people, and that can be a dangerous place. So you got to step back, get back in the real world. You're in the battlegrounds or something. And before you know, I started doing this, I'd look at larger channels and only kind of think about the cool parts of being a large channel. But now that I'm like, yeah, like now every time I look at a large channel, I'm like, I wonder how much insane 
hate mail they get on a daily basis. I wonder oh, how many crazy, how many crazy stalker fans they have or whatever, you know, like the harsher realities start to come into focus. Yeah. And you start to see like, these are just people behind these channels. It's mm-hmm. not as it's not like Coca-Cola. It's not this brand that you can just attack. Yeah, exactly. Keep your psycho comments to a minimum, please. Yep. <laughs> Calm down, people. It's not that serious. <laughs> well, awesome. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me on.